Frank Zafiro writes gritty crime fiction from both sides of the badge. As a former police officer, he has lived one side and seen plenty of the other, and his work reflects that authenticity. The Police Procedurals, check out his River City series. For hard-boiled tales from the criminal side, give Spoke Compton a try. And if you like private investigator stories, then Stefan Compriva mysteries are for you. Check out more about Frank's work at franksafiro.com or on his Amazon Arthur page. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be original stories, others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes. This is season four, A Word Before Dying. This season contains original stories written just for you and built around that classic mystery theme of the last word before dying. Episode four is about family matters. This is Finding Hiawatha, a Stefan Copriva mystery by Frank Zafiro. Chapter 1. It's a weird situation, Anna said. You've been a cop for how many years, I asked. I'm sure you've seen plenty of weird situations. Of course, she thought about it for a second, but most of those were straightforward in their weirdness. I stared at her. Ah, you're going to have to explain that one. We were sitting on a blanket at Cordarlene Park in Brown's Edition neighborhood. You'd think that with what happened to me here last year, I'd want to avoid the place. Instead, I felt strangely drawn to it, despite the ill memories. The thought of that day brought a tinge of the panic I'd felt the moment of the gunshot blast. I forced the emotion aside, though not before glancing down at the lower leg prosthetic where it lay stiffly on the blanket. The material from my khakis hung loosely around it. Come on, Steph, Anna said. You were a cop. You know what I mean. I shook my head. That was a long time ago, and only for a few years. So, no, I I really don't. She fixed me with a searching look, her intelligent dark eyes seeming to pierce any walls I might consider throwing up between us. Then she said, What I mean is that most of the weird things I encounter aren't a mystery, like last week when I went on a domestic where it was pretty clear that the brother and sister arguing were... She gave a shudder. Anyway, that was weird, but I knew what was going on. Most patrol weirdness is like that. Strange, but known. This call was strange and unknown, I asked. Exactly, she snapped her fingers. There was a bit of mystery to it. I understood what she meant now. People think cops are constantly surrounded by mystery, but that isn't the reality. 
Even in my short three-year career, I learned the truth about that. Most of the time, the cops were somewhere between pretty sure and completely certain on the truth concerning the situation. The bulk of the work is in ferreting out the facts that will prove that truth to an evidentiary standard. First probable cause for an arrest, and then ultimately beyond a reasonable doubt for a conviction. Very seldom do cops face the true, what really happened here mystery. Cops, now I think of cops, that's how I think of them now. There was a time when I would have said we. Tell me about it, I said. Anna nibbled on a grape, considering for a moment. Then she explained. Jameson Burrish was a wealthy man, though to hear Anna describe things, I guess he was somewhere between not having to worry about money and having so much he needed someone else to manage it for him full time. But in River City, the threshold for wealthy was much lower than in some parts of the country. Burrish had a daughter, Sadie, his only child. However, he had all but adopted his nephew, Arnzel, after Arnzel's parents died. Both were at Burrish's side three nights ago when he passed away from a long illness. Cancer, I asked? Liver disease, Anna told me. Apparently, Burrish was a heavy drinker all his life. Eventually, it caught up to him. All things do, I mused. He was expected to hang on for a while yet, Anna continued. There was an attending nurse, but she was only there during the day. The plan was to bring on a second nurse if or when he deteriorated. So his death wasn't expected, I asked? The timing was just off? A little, she said, but not suspiciously so. The medical examiner said so anyway. You talked to the ME, I pressed. I'm getting to that, she said. The day of Burrish's passing was uneventful. But around 7 that evening, after a late dinner, his condition worsened. The steady decline continued for several hours until he died just after 11. Did he eat something bad, I asked? Anna shrugged, breaking off a corner from an already small square of cheese. No way to tell that night, she said, popping the morsel into her mouth and chewing. But they'll do an autopsy, I asked. She nodded and then shrugged. I mean, I assume so. I mean, that'd be above my pay grade. I understood what she meant. If you were the responding patrol officer, who is the detective? Detective Towers, she said. He's been a long around time. He's been around a long time. Do you know him? Briefly, I said, but didn't elaborate. Tower had seemed an all right guy, but when I associated with him, it was during that case that was easily the low point of my life. I didn't feel like revisiting it now. Well, said Anna, tearing off another mouth-sized bite. He didn't come out right away, anyhow. Why not, I asked. Because, she said, by all accounts, it was a natural. She meant a natural but unattended death. These scenarios wouldn't require a police response if attended by medical personnel. Since it was unattended, a patrol officer was sent to determine if further investigation was warranted. The majority of situations involved police or people who, like Burrish, had long-time health issues, were of advanced age, or both. But, occasionally, something about the scene convinces a patrol officer to change the status from natural to suspicious. Whatever the reason for the shift, because a death was involved, the policy then is to dispatch a detective to conduct immediate follow-up at the scene. 
I took a handful of grapes. So what made you decide to wake up the detective? It got a little weird, Anna said. As Birch lay in his bed, drawing his last breaths, both Sadie and Arnzel were at his side. Birch had difficulty speaking, his voice barely a broken whisper. As he struggled to, struggled to say what would be his last words, his daughter and nephew leaned forward, straining to hear what he might say. And did he say anything, I asked? Anna popped an itty-bitty piece of cheese into her mouth, chewed, swallowed before answering. Then she nodded and said, he did. He looked right at them and spoke his last word before expiring. I tilted my head and gave her a look of mock approval. You're killing me here, Annabelle, she grinned slightly and made as if to tear off another nibble from the cheese square. And then she said, Hiawatha. Hiawatha? That was his last word, Hiawatha. I shook my head and spread my hands in confusion. See, Anna said, I told you, weird. You called out a detective because this guy's last word was odd, I asked. No, of course not, she said. But the word got his nephew all jazzed up and talking about inheritances. So money was involved. And when money's involved, you know how people get. I did. How they got was downright ugly. Plus, Anna said, the sudden downturn was borderline suspicious, at least to me. It would have been to me, too. I told her so. Thanks, Anna replied. So I told the family it was standard policy to have a detective attend in this situation. Dispatch sent tower. And you were stuck on scene for another hour? She shrugged. He actually got there pretty fast, maybe 40 minutes. I lifted a hand and she took the bait she dangled. After looking over the scene, he said, Anna smiled, he said the same thing I did, a natural, I only called him because I knew if I didn't, Sergeant Gomez would read my report and ask why. He's a good sergeant, but he's all about CYA. Cover your ass, I thought. I had to say I agreed with his outlook. Calling out the detective was a safe conservative play, Anna continued. If everything was above board, it cost us little time and money, and the city paid for both. If I didn't call a detective and something turned out fishy, I finished the thought for her. Like him being poisoned, you mean? She nodded. Yeah, that was on my mind, too. I mean, it seems all Agatha Christie, I know, but still, people do weird things. Or say them, I added. Hiawatha. Anna was right. As last words go, it was a little weird. Anyway, she said, Tower basically went through the exact same process I did and came to the same conclusion. Then he called the metal exam metal medical examiner to authorize release of the body. The Emmy said she wanted to conduct an autopsy just to be safe. So they sent out the ghouls to pick up the body. That last part made me smile. The job of collecting dead bodies was one of the odder ones I'd come across in my brief career, right up there with the folks who were contracted to clean up crime scenes after the investigation was complete. The few times I interacted with the transport people, they were decent enough, but I understood why patrol officers looked at them a bit askance. And that's the end of the story, I asked her. You went back to routine patrol? Pretty much, she said, except for one thing. What's that? I lifted a bottle of fizzy water to take a sip. 
Arnzel Burrish wants to hire you, she said. I froze, the bottle poised at my mouth. What? She shrugged. Arnzel followed me out to the car after Detective Tower left. He was convinced there was some secret message in Burrish's final word. He demanded I looked into it. Demanded? I raised an eyebrow. I bet that went over well. People demand things all the time, Anna said easily. I try to remember that while I may work for the citizens of River City, I don't necessarily take my orders from them. I told him that the job he was describing wasn't a police matter. It was a civil issue. So if he wanted to pursue it, he needed to hire a private detective. Oh, I didn't like where Anna was going. Tell me you didn't mention my name. Anna, I'm not a P.I. She smirked. What is it you do for Harity then? Joel Harity was the attorney I sometimes worked for as an investigator. Between that part-time income and my medical pension, I kept my head above water. I'm not licensed, I said. Details, details, Anna said with the whisk of her fingers. You did mention my name, I said, didn't you? She pulled a business card from her jeans pocket and held it out to me. Arnzel said you could call him today if you want the job. I snatched the card from her fingers. What job? It's better if he explains. She finished off the cheese square and cocked her head. Probably better if I don't know, too. Chapter 2 Arnzel Burrish was thin. He wore stylish clothing that looked like he hadn't changed in three days. His straight brown hair was shoulder length and mostly gathered back in a lackluster ponytail. His angular features appeared drawn as if he were always anxious, though his expression held more than a hint of arrogance as well. Just to be clear, I told him right away, I have no association with the police. Ansel scoffed. The police have no interest in getting to the bottom of this. And, I said, you should know that I'm not a licensed investigator. But you're qualified, right? He asked. I shrugged. I do some investigative work for an attorney here in town, and I was a police officer a long time ago. That's good enough for me, he said. I probably couldn't afford a top flight PI anyway. I tilted my head. No offense, he added. I just meant that I'm on a small allowance from the estate. I can afford to pay your fee, though. Don't worry. I'm not worried, I said, and I wasn't. I already had a three-day advance on my fee safely tucked into my pocket. I glanced around the small, clean apartment that was situated on River City's Lower South Hill. Not posh, but nice. Why don't you bring me up to speed on some of the finer details surrounding the situation? What do you want to know? Arnzel's tone was impatient, as if he expected me to already have been briefed. Burrish was your uncle, correct? I asked. That's right, Arnzel replied. My father was his brother. And your parents are both gone now. He nodded. My father had a heart attack when I was five. He was much older than my mother. She passed away when I was nine. Cancer. I'm sorry, I said. He shrugged away my condolences. After that, I lived with my uncle. The two of you were close, I asked. Close is a rather nebulous word, isn't it, Mr. Copriva? What's it really mean? I shrugged back at him. You tell me. Arnzel considered for a moment. Then carefully, he said, 
Let's just say that we were as close as any other family in our social circles, and we'll leave it at that. That sounds like there might have been some tension. Arnzel frowned at me. Of course there was tension. It was family, but nothing that had any bearing on this situation. I tried a different track. Did you get along with your cousin, Sadie? Sadie, he sniffed derisively. That's a dog's name, don't you think? I blinked, watching him. I um, don't have an opinion on that. Well, it is, he said, but I suppose it's fitting. People leave fortunes to their pets all the time, and Sadie's going to inherit everything. I noted the animosity toward his cousin and moved on. Is that what you meant by this situation? Exactly. He leaned forward conspiratorially. It's all in what he said, the last word. Hiawatha, I said, sharing the little I knew. Arnzel pointed a figure at me and waggled it knowingly. Exactly, you get it. I don't, actually, I said. I don't even know who Hiawatha was, other than he was an Indian. Arnzel scowled. He was indigenous, or if you can't manage that, at least say Native American. Sorry, I said quickly. I, I didn't mean to offend. I'm used to it, he said tersely. I looked him over again. His features were very Caucasian, very... Anglo, but that didn't mean. Are you indigenous? I asked. Me? Arnzel touched a hand to his chest. No, don't be absurd. I'm an historian. He blinked at that. Oh, so you teach somewhere or? Arnzel scowled deep and I'm a researcher, he said importantly. For a college? He knitted his brows. I'm independent. I see. I'm working on a book, he said. He held up his hand and swept it slowly across an imaginary marquee. The Forgotten Chiefs of the Pacific Northwest, he said reverently. Forgotten, I echoed. He nodded. Everyone's heard of Chief Joseph, right? I will fight no more, forever. He's one of the big names of the Pantheon, and Chief Seattle had a city named after him. I'm writing about those lesser-known chiefs and sub-chiefs who people don't know. It's important work. These men could end up lost to history. Hiawatha isn't one of them, though, right? I mean, she's not forgotten, is she? Arnzel appeared slightly perplexed. That's what I don't quite get. Why mention, why mention him? I mean, he was Mohawk, part of the Iroquois Confederacy. He lived clear across the country and more than a century before the chiefs that I focus my work on, and half of what we supposedly know about him is legend, not historical fact. He rubbed his upper arms excitedly and shifted in his seat, though the apartment didn't seem cold to me. It doesn't make sense, unless he was, unless he was just expressing a sentiment. Sentiment, I asked? Uncle Jameson, he always supported my work he explained. He paid a small stipend to allow me to focus on research. He shared your passion, then I asked. He shook his head. Not really. If he could name three indigenous leaders besides Sitting Bull, I'd be surprised. But he believed in me. I see, I said, nodding. Arnzo leaned forward and fixed me with a hard stare. What if his last word was a way of saying he wanted me to inherit more? I frowned. I, I don't quite understand the leap you're making. What did his will say? He left no will, Arnzel explained, and Sadie is his only child. By law, she gets everything. 
I could sue, of course, but I can't afford an attorney. So your stipend is going away, I asked. No, he said. Sadie already said that she would continue indefinitely. She even raised it slightly. Then what's the problem, I pressed. Do you know how much faster my research would go if I had more money to invest, he said. His tone had a little bite to it, as if to imply that I didn't know and probably couldn't know, whether the reason was my economic standing or lack of what he deemed sufficient education, I couldn't quite be sure, but I did know one thing. I did not much like Arnzel Burrish. He plowed ahead, a bit oblivious to however I might be feeling. I could hire research assistants, for one thing, get some history or journalism grad students to fan out and conduct interviews, hire a ghostwriter to punch up the draft, he waved his hands, all kinds of possibilities if I just had more money. I nodded, but said, I still don't see. Look, he said, Uncle Jameson was having difficulty with his speech near the end. He spoke few words and they weren't always intelligible. So it wasn't like he could come out and say he wanted to bequeath more money to me. He had to use shorthand, kind of code. And since he didn't know much about my work, he just said the only Indian name he could think of at the time. I noticed his word choice, but hadn't bothered correcting him. The virtuous don't like their own failings of virtue pointed out to him. I'll be honest, I said instead. That seems like quite a stretch. It's not a stretch, he said assuredly. It also sounds like more something for a lawyer to argue, I said. He nodded, and one will if it comes to that. But lawyers need ammunition, and that's where you come in. And then he smiled an oily smile at me. Chapter 3 When Anna said weird, she wasn't kidding. I found myself headed to the Burrish residence in my small Toyota, not sure exactly what I was supposed to accomplish. Arnzel was convinced that if I poked around, I'd find evidence of Burrish's intent to leave him a sizable sum. It was an unrealistic expectation, and I told him so. He snapped back that I was only trying to renegotiate my fee. I'd assured him I wasn't and almost told him to fuck right off, but then decided that I liked the feel of the folded bills in my pocket. I could ask a few questions. Once it was clear his paranoid beliefs were smoke, I'd be done and have no ethical qualms about the fee I'd earned. The Burrish home had an understated grandness to it. Large but not huge, well-tended grounds but nothing ornate. I knocked at the door and waited a long while before a woman in a gray housekeeping uniform answered. Her dark hair, pulled back in a severe bun, had a few wisps of gray in it. Yes, she asked. I'm Stefan Kopriva, here to see Sadie Burrish. Are you expected, she asked. I shrugged. Arnzel may have called. Her mouth tightened at the name. I thought she might refuse me entry, but instead she opened the door. I went inside. I could feel her eyes on me as I limped past. Years ago, I'd been shot in the knee during a robbery. That injury usually took a half mile or so of walking to reach the point of making me limp like this. I suppose I was fortunate that the man in the park with a shotgun years later aimed for the same leg. As a result, 
I have the same limp as before, just constantly now. Miss Sadie is in the library, I believe, said the housekeeper as she closed the door and brushed past me. I followed her. The house seemed larger on the inside, probably a result of high ceilings throughout. Our steps echoed slightly on the tile and then the wooden floor. Hers a steady muted padding, mine an offbeat clacking of worn heels of my cowboy boots. At the door to the library, she paused and looked over her shoulder. If you'll wait here. Though it was framed like a question, it was spoken as a command. I waited. She slipped inside, closing the door behind herself. I thought I might be able to hear hushed voices next, but either they spoke too quietly or the walls were too well insulated. So I stood there, waiting. I didn't have to wait long. The door opened and the housekeeper beckoned me inside. I stepped into the library. The room certainly lived up to its name. The walls were lined with tall bookshelves, chock full of books. I always wondered if people with rooms like this actually read all those books or if they just purchased a rich person's starter set. Sadie Burrish looked as if she were smart enough to read the full library. Her eyes landed on me and took me in with the same startling clarity that I've only ever seen from Anna. She wore casual slacks, a white shirt, and a burgundy button-up sweater. A pair of frameless glasses were perched on her nose, which was a bit too prominent for, for her to be featured on a magazine cover. Nonetheless, she was attractive, if in a stern way. Arnzel hired you, she asked. Her voice had a pleasant pitch to it, and even though there was no accent, it reminded me of a British narrator I heard recently in an audiobook. He did, I said. She raised one eyebrow. And how do you know, Arnie? I don't, actually, I said. It was a referral. She kept me under that appraising eye. I felt a little as if I were hooked up to a human polygraph. So you're not friends? I shook my head. No. In fact, if I'm being honest, I didn't entirely like the guy. An eyebrow arched. No? Then why work for him? His money spends, I said. Ah, she said, relaxing some. A professional, then. I like to think so, I said. She smiled softly, as if amused. Why are you here, Mr. Copriva? I motioned toward a pair of overstuffed chairs that faced each other in the center of the room. Could we sit? She shrugged and sat down. I took the chair opposite her. A chessboard sat on a low table between the chairs, a game in progress. Here's the thing, I said. Arnie seems to think that your father's final word concerned him. She tensed slightly. In what way? Frankly, I said, in a way that significantly increases his inheritance. I see, she rolled her eyes. And you're supposed to help with this exactly how? I'm not sure, I said. I told him it sounded like he needed a lawyer, not me. But he insisted, so here I am. Here you are, she said icily. To do what? To make demands? No, I said, keeping my own tone light. I'm just here to ask a few questions. She lifted her chin. What if I'm not inclined to answer your questions? That's totally your prerogative, I said. But you will hear them at least? She paused, thinking it over. I was slightly surprised at her reticence, but money and grief affected everyone differently. When she finally nodded, that decision made me, li made me like her just a little bit more. Thank you, I said. And now, you and Arnie were the only two present when your father passed, correct? That's right, she said. It was a start. 
And after he spoke his last words, did you have a reaction? She scowled. Mr. Copriva, I was grief-stricken. I held up my hands. I'm sorry, of course you were. That was a poorly, poorly worded question. What I meant was, did you have a reaction to what he said? She didn't answer. I noticed her index finger picking at the seam of her slacks nervously. Her grief might explain a lot, but this nervousness was starting to make me wonder if Arnzel's outlandish suspicions had a basis in reality. Arnie certainly had one, Sadie said. He trailed that police officer around the rest of her time here, asking if she heard what what father said. He even followed her out to her car, going on about it. Just as Anna said, I thought. You didn't see any significance in what he said? Sadie shrugged. It's a family matter. I don't know why Arnie feels like he needs to bring in outsiders. I ignored the dig. What did you think he's what did you think when he said Hiawatha? She blinked at me confused. Hiawatha. I watched her. Her confusion gave way to something that looked like panic, but then she recovered. Clearing her throat, she added, That's what Arnie heard then? Her reaction held something back. Isn't that what you heard? My father's speech was poor near the end, she said. He, he was difficult to understand. So you didn't hear Hiawatha, I asked. No, she said. But I suppose that what matters is that Arnie did. And he believes this means something? I nodded. He believes it means his uncles wanted to expand his support for the research he's doing. Sadie sniffled derisively. <laughs> research? Oh, please. I raised a brow questioningly. Sadie sighed. Mr. Copriva, do you know how much has actually come out of his research? I mean in terms of actual output? I shook my head. I have no idea. Nothing, she said. Not a single article, not a single drafted page of his so-called book. It's an exercise in keeping busy, in feeling relevant in a world with no relevance itself. That's a little harsh, I said. I thought about it a minute and then added, and nihilistic. It's accurate on both counts, Sadie answered evenly. But I told Arnie he doesn't have to worry about his stipend. I intend to honor my father's wishes and to continue it indefinitely. I even increased it slightly and will continue to do so each year to keep up with the rising cost of living. Why? I asked. Now her brow rose. Because he's family. Despite his shortcomings, Arnie is like a brother to me. And besides, it was my father's wish, as I said. I understand, I said. Is there anything else you can tell me that might help satisfy Arnie's concerns? She thought for a moment. I don't believe so. Thank you for seeing me, I said, and I meant it. Despite her having an icy demeanor, there was something about Sadie that made me like her. Maybe it was the steel I sensed in her. She gave a small nod. Good day, Mr. Copriva. Chapter 4 That night, Anna had to work, but she called me from the patrol car to say hello just before midnight. Maybe I shouldn't have called you so late, she said. You probably have to get up early to work on your case. Not really, I said. I think my only move at this point is to go tell Arnie he's wrong. No leads, she asked. I don't know what a lead would even look like in this situation, I said. It's like hunting for leprechauns. 
In that case, look for rainbows, Anna said. She got a laugh out of me. You're a lot of help. Hey, I got you the job, she said. You want me to solve the case for you too? That'd be nice, I said. How about this, she said, pretending to be put out. I got a message from Tower when I got back to work. Autopsy came back clean. I heard her patrol radio chirp in the background. She fell quiet while the dispatcher spoke. Then she said, Gotta go, a domestic. Be safe, I said. The next morning, around 10, I returned to Arnzel's apartment. I knocked on his door, but no one answered. Frustrated, I continued knocking for a long while until finally the doorknob rattled and the door swung open. Why? Arnzel Burrish was a mess. Most of his hair had slipped from the ponytail and was in disarray. His button-down shirt was half-tucked in with the tail of one side dangling at his thighs. And the zipper of his pants was halfway down. The expression on his face was slack with a trace of befuddlement. Are you all right? I asked. Arnzel stared at me, blinking. Then he nodded slowly. I'm good, he said hoarsely. Can I come in? I asked. He paused, digesting the words. Then he nodded. Sure. He stepped aside, sweeping his arm. Sure. I entered the apartment, expecting to see the remains of a party, but the place was as orderly as it had been before. What's up? Arnzel said, shuffling into his kitchen. Just thought we should talk, I said. Are you hungover? You want me to come back later? No, Arnzel said, reaching into the cupboard and removing a bag of coffee. I was going to call you anyway. What about, I asked. The postcard, he said. What postcard, I asked. He motioned toward the counter. It arrived in the mail yesterday. While Arnzel made coffee, I examined the postcard. It was a photograph of the iconic clock tower at Riverfront Park. The River City motto, near nature, near perfect, were the only words on the front. I flipped it over. Aside from Arnzel's address, only a single sentence appeared on the reverse. His wallet is missing. The letters were all written in a block style. I'm sure a handwriting expert can make some observation about the person who wrote it, but that was out of my depth. <coughs> Whose wallet is missing, I asked, more for form's sake than anything. Arnzel looked at me as if I were an idiot, and maybe I was, but I've learned the hard way that jumping to conclusions is a form of mental quicksand in an investigation. My uncle's wallet, Arnzel snapped, unencumbered by that same precaution. Who else's? Okay, I said. Assuming that's so, what was in his wallet? I'm sure it was the proof of his intentions regarding my inheritance, Arnzel said, putting the pot onto the coffee maker and flipping the switch. I guess I didn't need your help after all. I had an angel on my side. I stared down at the block printing. Yeah, but who? Who cares, he said. It's what's written, not who wrote it. I didn't feel like explaining to him how the court attached credibility to every statement, nor how anonymous statements carried virtually zero of said credibility. He'd find that out if he ever got that lawyer. Instead, I said, what did his wallet look like? Arnzel rubbed his upper arms as if they were cold, then pitched the bridge of his nose. Don't all wallets look the same? No, I said, working to keep the sarcasm from my voice. He waved me off. Well, I'm sure it was some kind of nice leather. 
it wasn't enough. So wallet isn't a word he used for his briefcase or a satchel or... Arnzel scowled at me in confusion. Why would it be? I don't know many people who routinely carry legal documents in their wallets, I said. Arnzel glanced away, watching the pot impatiently as it filled with dark liquid. Do you travel in wealthy circles much? He said absently. No, I admitted. Well, there you go, he said. I bit back a sharp reply. Instead, I forced my voice to remain even. I don't think it's a socioeconomic thing, I explained. It's more like a physics thing. A lot of paperwork like that doesn't fit into a man's wallet. Arnzel let out a long sigh. Well, there must be something in it or it wouldn't be missing, would it? I shrugged. Someone could have stolen it for the cash in it. Please, Arnzel scoffed. People like us don't bother stealing a few dollars from a dead man's wallet. If we're going to steal, it's going to be something big. He threw me a sideways glance, like an inheritance. I see, I said. So you want me to follow up on this? He lifted his chin to me. Did you use up all of your advance? No, I admitted. Probably not. Then chop, chop, Arnzel said, pouring himself a cup of coffee. He didn't bother to offer me one. And don't mess it up either. I want what's mine. As much as I would have liked to be rid of Arnzel Burrish, I had a personal code to always earn my fee. One trip to interview one person didn't quite measure up. So I headed back to the Burrish home with a postcard tucked into my jacket pocket. The housekeeper didn't seem any happier to see me this time around. However, I got fewer questions and no waiting before I was ushered into Sadie's presence. This time we spoke in the sunroom where she sat on a large wicker chair that faced north. Without asking permission, I took the seat next to her. Tea, she asked. I shook my head. The sun spilled into the room, providing a pleasant warmth. That surprised me, given the orientation. Do you get good sun in here year-round? Oh, yes. This facing keeps us in the sun's path all day and most of the year. Only in the dead of winter are we too far north. And even then, she pointed to a sunroof. We still get some oblique rays. She turned back to me. But you didn't return here to talk about astronomy, Mr. Copriva. No, I said. I came to ask about a missing wallet. Her eyes flashed. It was only a moment, but it was unmistakable. And what am I supposed to know about that? I withdrew the postcard and handed it to her. She read it and her face fell. A second later, she collected herself again. This proves nothing. I nodded. I know. It's not even written in real handwriting, she said. I agreed again. I know. She handed it back to me. Then why show it to me? I took the postcard into my pocket. Because Arnie has it, and he'll give it to his lawyer, and his lawyer will get some mileage out of it no matter what. She raised her chin in authority. So this is a form of blackmail then? No, I said. All I want is the truth. That's what you want, Sadie asked. Because I don't know if that's what Arnie wants. He wants whatever nets him the most money. Probably, I admitted. But I'll settle for the truth. She stared at me for a long while. Then she motioned down toward my leg. Would it be rude of me to ask what happened there? I looked at the leg that no longer bent like it used to. Some people might think so. But do you, she pressed. No, I said. I was shot by a man with a shotgun in Cordarlene Part about a year and a half ago. Why, she asked. I was pretty sure things like this didn't happen in her world. 
I assume, I said, he intended to kill me because of what I knew. She considered my answer. Was it the truth, what you knew? I nodded. It was. She thought a moment and then asked, Do you have family, Mr. Copriva? The shift in topic was abrupt, but I rolled with it. Not really, I said, thinking of the recent events surrounding my mother. My parents are gone. My grandmother raised me, but she's gone now, too. Then you may not know this, she said, but the truth is often a difficult thing where families are concerned. I smiled grimly. Oh, I know. She watched me a little while longer and then nodded. Yes, I believe you do. Very well, I will tell you the truth, and you may do with it what you will. Thank you, I said. She matched my smile. Don't thank me yet. After you hear what I have to say, you may not feel gratitude. Well, we're at the midpoint. I missed my chord and then just gave up. <laughs> well, your timing on giving up was excellent because I was just about to pause to say, this is the part of the story where we give you, Jack, a chance to figure out what is going on in this tidy little mystery. I'll be honest, I'm very lost. And so, part of it's because I fell asleep while playing. <laughs> you always say you fall asleep, and yet I see you sitting upright. Your hands are constantly moving. Yeah. You're that's not part snoring. Of the, the job, though. All right. So Jameson Burrish is dead. Mm -hmm. He's an older dude. He's got liver issues. He's got one daughter, Sadie, who mm -hmm. seems pretty put together. Mm -hmm. He's got a nephew who he's raised since he was nine, Arnzel, who seems a little bit like, you know, freakishly obsessive. Um, the only other character we have met is this housekeeper who let um, Stefan in the door. So... Do you think that Jameson Burrish died of natural causes? That's the whole mystery. Do mm -hmm. we think that's the mystery? Do we think he died of natural causes? Do we think he was killed? Do you think he died of natu natural causes? And what do you think the deal is between Sadie and Ar Arnzel? I, I got no idea, man. You see, Sadie, she's about to spill. So I have a feeling she's innocent. She might not be completely innocent in all regards, but she's innocent in murder. Or else she wouldn't say none of this, you know? She is about to spill. That's why we put our break here. Exactement. Before we go into her big reveal, though, let's remind people that they can join our newsletter on the Prowl. The link is in the show notes. It comes out every full moon. Oh, I'm a little bit behind. I catch up on that. And uh, you can check out past editions on my website. And if you missed it, it's never too late. Raising Stakes, the third book in my Jesus de la Cruz series, is out. came out in February. Here's the back cover. First day of summer is the last day of a young accountant's life. Colin McHenry is out for his regular run when an SUV crosses into his path, crushing him. Within hours of the hit skip, Cleveland homicide detective Jesus de la Cruz finds the vehicle in the owner's garage, who is on vacation three time zones away. The setup is obvious, but not the hand behind it, because I do like to write mysteries. The suspects read like a textbook. Jilted fiancé, jealous co-worker, overlooked subordinate, dirty client. Raising Stakes is book number three in the De La Cruz series. See if you can beat Jesus, goes by Cruz, to this solution. It's available, your favorite booksellers, Amazon, pretty much everywhere. 
All right, my money's on the maid. On the what? The maid. The maid. <laughs> yeah. I feel like by you laughing, it means I'm wrong, but oops, that's my no, money. I wasn't tracking with you. I was like reading the thing about my book, and you're like, I feel like there's maid. I'm like, there's no maid in that story. <laughs> Oh. So I'm like, oh wait, wait, wait! You're talking about finding Hiawatha. You're putting, uh-huh. you're putting the money on the maid. Well, okay. Also, you got to think. I highly doubt at this point that he actually said Hiawatha. Just Sadie said she didn't, she didn't hear Hiawatha. That's what Sadie said. She didn't hear Hiawatha. So twenty bucks says he didn't say that, mm-hmm. and that her truth be revealing the evilness. All right, I'm gonna shut up and play a tune. Okay, Jack's gonna shut up and play. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna play He's one. He's fussing with his pages so he can see his baseline. Yeah, this is one that I wrote as a waltz. I'm gonna change it. You ready? It's gonna be good. Are you still keeping in three four time? Otherwise, it's not a waltz. Well, no, I'm not. I'm gonna change it. <laughs> I'm not. I don't want to play your story in the three four time. Oh. Will that be confusing? I don't know. I'll end up reading in three four time. Well, I'm Could not gonna fun. then. Huh? I'm not gonna then. I'm kind of curious what it would sound like. All right, we'll we'll do it then. Can can you do it? More I'll match you. At the very least, I'll put it in a three-four time. Okay, ready? I'm ready. Chapter five. Let's start with this postcard. I said, "Do you know who sent it?" No, not for certain. Sadie admitted. Any guesses, I pressed. Sadie nodded sadly. If I had to, I'd suspect Patricia. I cocked my head. Patricia is? The housekeeper, she said. She's been with us for a decade. So if it was her, that is a betrayal that stings. But her loyalty was always to my father, not to me. Sending this missive to Arnzel was no doubt a play for her own self-interest. In what way, I asked. She took a deep breath. Last week, she told me she intended to retire after my father passed. I congratulated her. After my father did pass, she mentioned a severance package that I found excessive. When I said so, she claimed that my father had promised it to her. You don't believe her, I asked. I wouldn't say that precisely, she said. But my father was very clear with me regarding his wishes in the weeks up to his passing. If he promised such an extravagant package to her, I'm sure he would have mentioned it. So you refused, I guessed. I did, she said, although I told her this morning that I would meet her demands halfway. I was surprised, and how did she respond? Sadie considered my question. I would characterize her response as grudgingly accepting. I nodded. Do you think she'll admit to sending the postcard to Arnzel? I doubted, Sadie said. Sending it may have been a way to garner his appreciation after her discussion with me didn't work out. By now, it would derail our current arrangement. I think it'd be best for everyone if we simply let the origin of the postcard remain a mystery for the moment. Arnzel's lawyers won't do that, I said. Clearly, she said, but that is a concern for another day. Shall we move on? All right, I said. Is the wallet missing? No, Sadie said. And if you like, I'll get it for you. I nodded. I'd appreciate that. 
Sadie made no move to follow through with her promise. First, she said, there's something I should tell you about Arnie. What's that, I asked. She didn't hesitate. He's a heroin addict. I paused, taking in her words. Suddenly, many of the things I'd seen fell into place and made a certain sense. His mannerisms, the rubbing of his arms as if cold, and how disheveled he seemed that morning fit the profile of a user. I knew heroin was a drug that took its time eating away at a person. I'd seen users maintain their lifestyle for years, the drug only whittling away at them until finally toppling down into a realm of addiction. People were able to keep their jobs and their marriages intact until then. Was that Arnzel, a user still gliding along with his life not yet in pieces? You know I'm telling you the truth, Sadie said evenly. I can see it in your expression. Maybe, I allowed. You used to be a police officer, Sadie continued. You've seen drug users before. True, I acknowledged. Then you know the path that the lives in inevitably take, she said. Everything ends up feeding their addiction. That doesn't seem to be the case with Arnie, I said. He has the apartment and... I stopped. The shady shook her head. What? His apartment is part of his stipend, she explained, paid for by my father. So are his utilities. He has an account at the grocery store that is also paid each month. My father was friends with the man who owns the store. I thought about it for a moment. So all of his necessities are paid for by my father, she said. Well, by me now, and I'll keep paying them. Because he's family, I said. Precisely, she agreed. But what I won't do is give him more than the small cash stipend he's getting now. Arnie's addiction has been on again, off again fair for years, Mr. Copiva. He stayed mostly sober, but he falls off the wagon often enough for us to know he hasn't beaten the addiction. If he has a great deal of disposable income on hand, he is unlikely to spend it on research assistants or ghostwriters or whatever else I'm sure he railed about affording when he hired you. I doubt he'd spend the money on a trip to a rehabilitation clinic either. No, I think we both know where that money would go. I nodded slowly in agreement. It would go up his arm, I said. Yes, she said, and probably kill him in the process. But if I continue with the arrangement my father had, providing for food and shelter, but ensuring he doesn't have enough money to do more than the occasionally fall off the wagon, then at least he has a shot at surviving. And of course he knows if he ever wants to go to a clinic, the expense will be covered. He knows that, I asked. She nodded. Father told him so explicitly on multiple occasions. I heard it several times myself. I leaned in toward her. What was Arnie's response? Oh, he waved the suggestion away and called it rubbish. In his mind, he doesn't have a problem, at least not with heroin. He believes his biggest problem is a lack of research funds. Is his research work real, I asked? Sadie considered my question and then said, To a point, yes. I mean, he certainly can tell you that the Looking Glass River was named for a particular chief. He may even have spoken to one of the chief's descendants. But like I told you before, he hasn't produced any articles or a single page of the book he keeps threatening to write. Why not pay for his writing project too, I asked. You're already paying for the apartment and all the rest. Sadie smiled indulgently. 
The work keeps him busy, Mr. Copriva. It gives him something to focus on, a purpose. Father didn't want to take that away from him by making it easier. I nodded. I see. Her smile broadened, though it had some sadness in it. Not quite, but you're getting closer. She stood. I'll get that wallet now. Sadie left the sunroom, leaving me alone. I closed my eyes against the warmth, the pleasant warmth, and waited. I ran through our conversation, asking myself if I believed her. I'd been lied to a lot in my life. I wasn't invincible when it came to detecting lies, but my batting average was good. Sadie showed none of the usual indicators that I usually saw in a liar. Quite the opposite, really, except for the fact that it seemed as if she were still hiding something. That was different than an outright lie, but it still registered. When she returned, she sat down again and plopped a dark, worn wallet on a small table between us. Unlike Arnzel's guess, there was nothing ornate about the wallet, though the leather did appear to be fine quality. This is the missing wallet, I asked. This is my father's wallet, Sadie said. I wouldn't say it was missing, exactly. I caught the nuance. Then what would you say? She gestured to the wallet. I'd say, have a look. I picked up the wallet. It was a standard trifold design. The first thing I noticed was a thick sheaf of bills along the money compartment. I flicked through the bills, seeing everything from 20s to 100s. Then I turned to the card holders. An array of credit cards, some of them like black and diamond, was that I was very unfamiliar with, were mixed in with membership cards to a variety of clubs and organizations. I saw nothing out of the ordinary. The wallet had a picture carousel. I glanced at each of these, seeing Jameson Burrish posing in a few with a variety of different people. There was Sadie at different ages as well as Arnzel. As I paged through them, I noticed one empty slot near the end. I pointed that out to Sadie. And so we come to it, she said. She leaned forward, holding a photo between her fingers. My father didn't say Hiawatha. That may be what Arnie heard, but it isn't what he said. I watched her, waiting. His last words, Sadie said, were, Hide my wallet. I thought it through, muttering Hiawatha and hide my wallet. Finally, I shrugged, All right, I, I can see it, especially with his speech issues. And he wanted you to hide the wallet because of this picture? Yes. Sadie laid the photo on the table. I looked down to see Burrish with his arms wrapped around a woman in a way that could only be called romantic. Both were smiling unabashedly. Who's the woman in the picture, I asked. My aunt, Sadie said. Arnie's mother. I took it all in, connecting the dots. This was after... Yes, she interrupted. The picture is from after my mother passed away and after my uncle died. But I believe... She trailed off and shrugged. I consider her words. The situation was right out of a V.C. Andrews novel. You believe it went on for a long time, I asked. I do, confirmed Sadie. I know it was wrong that father loved his brother's wife. He admitted it to me and expressed regret for the transgression. But even before he lost mother, the relationship was a cold one. And as for his brother, the truth was that he and Uncle Charles were never particularly close. It was a betrayal, yes, but no one was ever hurt by it. Because they kept it a secret, I said. Sadie nodded. They did. I followed the clear implication. So there's a chance that... 
Yes, Mr. Copriva, Sadie said. There is a good chance that Arnie isn't my cousin, but my brother, which, if true, would entitle him to half of my father's estate, which would kill him as sure as any death sentence. I leaned back in my chair, stunned at the turn of events. So, Sadie says, it would appear that you have a choice to make. I hit the wrong chord again. Chapter 6. I struggled with it for the rest of the day. I believe Sadie was telling the truth, but I couldn't be 100% certain. Arnzel had hired me. He was my client. I may not be a licensed investigator, but that didn't mean professional ethics didn't apply. I was obligated to tell him what I knew. What followed wasn't my responsibility. Only the world doesn't work that way, does it? If I remained silent, I was complicit in cheating a man out of his inheritance. True, a, a DNA test may reveal him to be exactly who he thinks he is, Jameson's burrish nephew. But if it proved him to be the man's son, didn't he deserve to know? And didn't he deserve his rightful share? I thought of how Arnsel described his relationship with Burrish. They didn't seem especially close. And the man was gone now. It wasn't as if Arnsel could rediscover a, re a different relationship with him once he had this knowledge. And if Sadie was telling the truth about his addiction, her prediction about what would happen if he inherited all that wealth was the most likely outcome. I'd seen it in plenty when I was a cop and since. Drug addiction was a cruel mistress. I could save Arnzel from that. But was it up to me? It was. The better question was, should it be? I realized the second question didn't matter to anyone but philosophers. The fact was, I had a decision to make, and I decided to make it. Arnzel looked a little better that evening when I visited him. I now spotted small mannerisms of a heroin user that I hadn't spotted before. The sniffly nose, along with the arm rubbing, Maybe he was thin because of genetics, but it could be drug use, too. How could I know? What did you find out, he asked me. I stared at him for a while. He narrowed his eyes impatiently. Well? Why didn't you tell me about you using drugs, I asked. His eyes widened slightly. Then he scowled. How is that any of your business? It wasn't before, I said. It is now. How, he said. Have you ever considered going into rehab, I asked him. Ansel scoffed and waved his hand. Don't be stupid. I can quit any time I want. Rehab would help, I said. Rubbish, he said. Now tell me what you found out. I slowly withdrew the postcard and placed it on the counter. The wallet isn't missing, I said. He frowned. How do you know? I saw it, I said. I even looked through it. And, he asked. I shook my head slowly. There was nothing in it. His frown deepened. Nothing at all? Cash and credit cards, I said. A few pictures of Sadie and you. He glanced down at the postcard, dejected. So this? This is someone messing with you, I told him. He looked, his features hopeful again. And what about Hiawatha? What did you find? Nothing, I said. There's nothing to find. Just an old man trying to say he loved you by uttering a word that he knew would be meaningful to you. 
Arnzel stared at me, mouthing back some words that I'd just spoken. Then he shook his head in disbelief. No, that can't be. It is, I assured him. I'm sorry. He leaned back against the counter and rubbed his upper arms. So, so that's it? For my part, yes, I said. But at least you still have your stipend. He nodded and, and I turned to go. When I reached the door, I turned back. Arnie? He looked at me, his expression still crushed. Good luck with your research, I said. And then I turned and I left. Chapter 7 That night, Anna and I had a simple meal at my house. After the dishes were washed and stowed, we settled on the couch with a glass of wine. You're quiet tonight, she observed. Oh, sorry about that, I said. Was it your case, she asked, the one you just finished? I nodded. You want to talk about it, she asked. No, I said, but do me a favor, will you? Sure, she said with a quick smile. What? No more referrals, I said. She gave me a long, questioning look, but when I didn't answer, Anna merely nodded her promise, clinked to my glass, and we both drank a silent toast. The End Well, that was depressing. <laughs> Frank writes really cool stories. Frank's stories do not have um, obvious endings, you know. So does the logic work? Of course, yeah. Yes, it does. The old man is dying, but he doesn't plan to check out today. He still has things to do to figure out. His daughter has a good head on her shoulders, and she'll be all right when he goes. But the son, or the man he raised as a son, you know, what does he do to do right by him? The reaper comes, the old man's out of time, and he gives his son the only thing that he has left to give him, and that is a chance to live to fight another day. And he says, hide the wallet. So I like this story for a few reasons. One is that the death is natural. Uh-huh. Like so Isn't few normal. mystery stories actually have natural deaths in them. So I thought that was cool. And uh, I like the moral dilemma. What did you think about that? That's what made it so depressing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you couldn't give it to him. I mean, neither way is a satisfying ending, which is kind of the point right. with those addictions is that you don't have a satisfying ending until you, you know, cure yourself of it, which he, you don't know if he's going to do or not. And I would think, I would like to think of Sadie that if if Arnzel really did truly clean himself up, like really kicked his addition, ad, addiction, that she would have, you know, given him more money. Mm -hmm. Maybe not, you know, come clean and given half of the estate, but she would have lacks the controls. Yeah. Yeah. There was no winning, right? Nope. And that's the cool part. Um, I guess that's not the cool part, but that's the uh, interesting part. Yeah, yeah. Frank wrote us a really cool story. So thank you to to Frank for that. Um, so, Jack, I wrote you up some stuff. You got your part ready? Uh, I indeed do. This is quite a few pages. Well, it's two pages. But You ready? All right. About Pacific Northwest Native Tribes. 
Living in Indiana, our history classes taught us about Tecumseh and my favorite chief, Little Turtle. Uh, Little Turtle was a chief of the Miami people and led his nation to victory against settlers pushing into parts of Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, and Michigan. He was eventually defeated by General Mad Anthony Wayne and signed the Treaty of Greenville. Uh, he died in 1812 of natural causes and is buried here in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, but our story today talked about the chiefs of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, something mom and I know nothing about, uh, but when has that stopped us? Never. A website called That Oregon Life posted in November 2021 about 10 amazing Pacific Northwest Native Americans we need to know about. Uh, oh, yeah, I just read that wrong. Anyway, uh, you can check out the link to that, which is called That Oregon Life uh, in our show notes. In the for, Wait, is it in our show notes? Or did in I just what? say that for no reason? Yeah, we'll put the link to the article, full article in the show notes, but here's some, just a few of them. Here's a sample. Old Chief Yosefi, or Joseph, from 1785 to 1871. Dude lived a while. Uh, Chief Joseph, the elder leader with peace, wanting a spirit of coexistence. We have to proofread these. I think you have to proofread them, too. I ha- well, the one sentence is, the died in 1912. That's the first four words. Huh. Maybe I do have to <laughs> proofread a little. You have to proofread, too. Yeah, but that sounds fun. Uh, he was an early... Uh, Chief Joseph the Elder was an early convert to Christianity and entered into a treaty that gave up... A, that really? <laughs> a treaty what gave up a portion yeah, of their tribal land for a commitment that the whites would not encroach their sacred wallowa valley there's a lot of typos my fault yeah i'm i'm not sure what that sentence means but we'll continue about eight years later the u.s broke the treaty like every other one they ever made with the native americans uh when gold was discovered uh old joseph refused to leave the valley and stood off against the u.s government his son young chief joseph from 1880 to 1904 no from 1840 to 1904 took up the battle. In 1873, he negotiated a new treaty that allowed his tribe to stay in the valley, and the U.S. renegated... Reneged. That word. On it in 1877. Young Chief Joseph was told his people had 30 days to leave or it would be considered an act of war. The army pursued about 750 natives that day uh, during a five-day... Siege. Siege. I was... Sorry, the entire... Sentence confused me. Anyway, 150 people died. Um, young Chief Joseph surrendered, and he and about 400 were taken as prisoners of war and held for over seven years. Many died of diseases the Europeans brought, for which they had no immunity. Chief Seattle, from 1786 to 1866, uh, was a big man and respected for being a strong leader with peaceful ways. He led his people to help the newly arriving settlers live in the area. That backfired on him as the newcomers grew, took more and more land, and eventually pushed the Native American people to reservations. Uh, the U.S. Congress took over three years to sign the treaty, leaving the Native American people to languish in poverty. Uh, Marie Dorian, a.k.a. Marie Lavoie, I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, was born near the St. Louis, was born near St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, she was one of the first pioneer women to cross the continent. She was pretty amazing, surviving a whole, an, an a whole husband, giving birth to her third son on the trail. He died six days later. The son? 
Yeah. Oh, it's depressing. Yeah. Anyway, uh, next up, watching uh, her a-hole husband, uh, all the men... What? Watching her a-hole husband... So... What? On the trail, she had to watch her husband and all the men be killed by a rival tribe, and she fled with her two boys into the Blue Mountains in the middle of winter. Man, that sentence. These are confusing. Yeah, uh, I really need to do a better job proofreading. <laughs> she tucked her children into a burrowed wrap in fur and kept going for help. The Walla Walla tribe rescued her and her sons. She is called the Madonna of the Trail, Walks Far Woman, and Madame Dorian. Kennewick Man, Kennewick? Yeah, Kennewick Man, the ancient one, uh, was found by accident in 1996. The Kennewick Man is the skeletal remains of a man uh, that are, which is between 9,200 and 9,600 years old. He is a prehistoric Paleo American, one of the first people to live in the North American continent. Chief Don Ivey, from 1951 to 2021, was a leader, educator, and scholar. He created programs that did many things, like help teens get workplace skills and jobs. Uh, it seemed everything he did was to make people's lives better and to build them up. Sadly, he died last July. Uh, Esther Ross, from 1904 to 1988, was an establishing... Uh, what? In establishing the Point Elliott Treaty, the U.S. did not recognize the Stillaquamish tribe, which meant people of the River Tribe. Esther fought most of her life to change that, taking the government to court and relentless demonstrating. In October 1975, when she was 72, the U.S. recognized the tribe who gave Esther the rank of chief. Oh my gosh, I can't read for the life of me. Well, it didn't help all the typos I left you in there. <laughs> anyway, it was fun. So let's learn a little bit more about Frank. So like I said at the beginning, Frank Zafiro writes gritty crime fictions from both sides of the badge. As a former police officer, he's lived on one and seen plenty of the other. For his police procedurals, check out his River City series. If you like the hard-boiled crimes, give his Spoke Compton a try. I read At Their Own Game and recommend it for people who really like their stories hardcore. I won't say that I liked it, but I will say I couldn't put it down. And even now, a year plus after reading it, the story comes back to my mind. If you like private investigator stories, then Stefan Copriva Mysteries are for you. Finding Hiawatha is a short story for Stefan. There are three length... I'm sorry, I can't read either. There are three full-length stories, Waist Deep, Lovely Dark and Deep, and Friend of the Departed. Goodreads reviewers rated the stories between 3.91 and 4.38, and here are a few reviews from Stefan's fans. And before you continue, I think you should reiterate the fact that you didn't like the book because it was hardcore, not because you didn't like the book. Oh, no, it was really well written, and it was just sort of haunting. There's some things like... Like the movie Pulp Fiction, when I first saw that, like it was so striking. But how can you say you liked Pulp Fiction, right? It was just, it's brutal. So, yeah. Um, you should, uh, Jack, I, I think I still have uh, At Their Own Game around here. I'll find it and give it to you. All right. Reviews. One reviewer said, what a great read. Retired cop with a with a past of both heroism and disdain. Great characters with a superb plot and plenty of action. A different plot in that we are dealing with barely child pornography. 
and the underworld street activities. This author is superb in everything he writes. I have to agree with that. Another said, Frank Zafiro knows how to develop a character complete with accurate and believable insights and feelings. Waist Deep is a well-written story with twists and turns you never see coming. Ex-Cot Copriva gets under your skin and stays there. And finally, a fast-moving book, but fastest-moving book I've read in a while. Enough action to keep the story interesting and moving. Things are not contrived to end up nicely and tied in a pretty bow, so the story has a more real feel to it. Good book. Frank also hosts his own podcast called Wrong Place, Right Crime. He interviews authors from all subgenres in the mystery, thriller, and crime genre. It's a great place to find new storytellers and to hear the inner workings of their imaginations. Find out more about Frank's work at franksafiro.com or on his Amazon author page. Links are in our show notes. And with that, we are wrapping up this episode of Mysteries to Die For. Support our show by subscribing, telling a mystery lover about us, and giving us a five-star review. Become a member of our Body Bag Brigade by financially supporting this season with a one-time donation. Pay what you can. Interested in advertising on Mysteries to Die For? Check out our website. Information is in the show notes and on our website at tgwolf.com forward slash podcast. Mysteries to Die For is written by T.G. Wolf with contribution by Jack Wolf. All the typos came from T.G. Wolf. Finding Haliwatha was written by Frank Zafiro. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by T.G. Wolf. Have a great couple of weeks, everyone. We'll see you back here in two.